0: This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpothanchel. Got CBD in your kitchen or bathroom cabinet? CBD stands for cannabidiol, and it's found in all kinds of products from lotions to lollipops. How effective is it in treating common ailments, even diseases? We'll talk with a doctor at Harvard Medical School about CBD and answer your questions, too. That's later. Now, CBD comes from the hemp plant, a crop that farmers in many states are growing now that the federal government has relaxed re- restrictions on it. Coming up, we'll find out more about the resources available to help Connecticut farmers interested in growing hemp. But first, joining me now in studio is Patrick Scahill, science and environment reporter for Connecticut Public Ra- Radio. Uh, Patrick, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. And you can join us too, 860 275 or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at uh, where we live. I mentioned uh, farmers are now interested 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 or in the process of growing hemp Mm -hmm. when uh, you've been reporting on this in Connecticut. Why now? Uh,
1: Why now? So that is a a great question. I think uh, there might be two ways to answer that. Um, One being there are some uh, really, really strong economic incentives uh, right now to grow hemp. Uh, And two, uh, legislation, both at the federal and state level, uh, is currently allowing it. So let's sort of break those down. So the first one is, uh, is economic. Um, you've probably heard about uh, CBD products. They are uh, kind of like literally everywhere <laughs> uh, right now. Um, and there's a lot of money here. The Connecticut uh, Farm Bureau Association uh, is estimating that one acre of uh, hemp could produce uh, be- somewhere between $37,000 and $150,000 in profits uh, if you are cultivating this hemp for CBD oil Uh, A recent article in the New York Times uh, also said that uh, the CBD industry is predicted to be about $16 billion by uh, the year 2025. So there's a lot of money there. Um, I think a lot of farmers uh, in Connecticut, and we're going to hear from one uh, soon, uh, have historically looked maybe at other um, crops uh, as kind of anchor cash crops uh, to uh, offset maybe other losses in their fields. Tobacco, obviously, in Connecticut, historically, was was that crop. Uh, that is a market that's seen a lot of fluctuation uh, with prices. It's a market that uh, health-wise, obviously, is, is going out of vogue. Uh, so farmers are looking for other crops uh, to provide uh, that money to stabilize their fields, and I think hemp, hemp is that. So that's the financial uh, portion of it. The other portion, and we're gonna get more into this later, I think, is um, the law. Mm-hmm. So in 2014, uh, the federal farm bill essentially created uh, pilot programs that states could sign up for where they could uh, grow hemp under very, very strict conditions. Uh, the 2018 uh, federal farm bill uh, sort of uh, legalized hemp a little bit further. And then uh, in May, the Connecticut legislature signed off on uh, its own pilot program for hemp. So the law is there. Uh, the financial incentives are there. So a lot of farmers uh, in the state and so far about 60, more than 60 actually have signed up uh, for this uh, pilot program uh, are saying we want to get on on board this hemp thing. we want to do this. we want to try this out. we want to see how it works
0: so when you say legalize hemp that's for commercial growing only
1: that is for commercial growing only. there are a lot of regulations. Uh, the state spells them out very well on their website. Uh, this is something that you know you you do need to go through a, a permitting process to do. You have to abide by uh, certain requirements, uh, demonstrating both how you're going to sell the product. Uh, you have to uh, keep logs as to how you grow it. Uh, and then there are restrictions for where you can grow it, setback requirements, acreage requirements, things like that.
0: So when we talk about hemp, uh, it's it's in the cannabis family. So how is it different from marijuana?
1: Right, right. So uh, this is a question um, that uh, a lot of people uh, have. So uh, hemp uh, and marijuana are both uh, types of cannabis plants. Uh, the difference uh, is, is kind of complicated, but in, in simple terms uh, boils down to sort of the chemistry of the plant. Uh, so a hemp plant uh, has a, a chemistry that contains a compound called uh, CBD or cannabidiol. Uh, it also contains uh, THC, which is the psychoactive component of marijuana, but it contains that in very, 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 very low levels. So uh, one of the things that uh, Jerry Berkowitz, he's a professor at UConn, has told me, you know, if you went into a greenhouse and there were a bunch of hemp plants in there, like, yes, you could smoke them. It would not do anything though. They're, the THC levels are so minute that they are not going to produce any psychoactive effects. Um, so hemp is is cultivated for CBD. Uh, of course, hemp You know, historically has been used for many, many other things too. The fiber is something that's been used in uh, canvases for uh, sales on ships. Uh, you can use it in brake pads. You can use it uh, in for, as foundations for buildings. You can use it for rope. You can use it for sneakers, uh, all sorts of stuff.
0: Sounds like a wonder plant, Patrick.
1: Well, it's certainly <laughs> being uh, marketed that way right now. So,
0: Patrick Scahill is with me. He's the science environment reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. As we look into this growing industry in Connecticut, uh, hemp, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, local farmers that are interested in getting permits uh, uh, to grow uh, this particular plant. Uh, one of them is joining us now by phone, Ed Casheda, who's president of Casheda Farms in South Windsor, Connecticut. Ed, welcome to our show.
2: Well, well thank you for having me.
0: We heard uh, Patrick uh, explain, you know, historically, uh, tobacco was uh, the crop uh, grown here in the state of Connecticut. This is something that your family has deep roots in.
2: Yes, it is. You know, uh, tobacco has been king in the Connecticut Valley, ever since the late 1800s and we are a century farm and we've been growing it on our farm since 1905.
0: And so how has, I guess, demand changed? How have you seen it change over the years, Ed?
2: Well, the greatest thing that I witnessed was when they uh, started a process called homogenization and that's, you know, basically dark tobacco, broadleaf and shade was for cigar wrapper and binder and then through this uh, homogenization process that was introduced, they were able to take leaves that weren't class one grade A leaves and make a sheet tobacco out of it that would, you know, basically do the same thing. And this caused the uh, market to crash and lessen the demand to the point where the government had to step in and form the Con Mass Tobacco Cooperative in mm-hmm. which the government would literally purchase the tobacco from the farmers and uh, just store it until there was a need. Then we had our resurgence, so probably 15 years ago where you saw all the actors and famous people starting to smoke again, the price of tobacco skyrocketed, and they did buy up all the tobacco that was in storage over the years, over a million pounds from the ConMass Co-op, and uh, like I said, that lasted for about three or four years, and then the demand leveled off again, and now we have some offshore customers to where there's again a slight demand and the price is livable, you know, you're, you're not going to get rich. But I've seen so many ups and downs with the price of tobacco that it's really unstable. And the thing that concerns most tobacco growers now is the social unacceptability of the smoking. Uh, we have, a, you know, an active program here in the United States, and but these other countries that we sell to, they're getting on the bag wa- bandwagon for anti-smoking campaigns also. Mm.
0: So, so this it's a, is,
2: like Pat said, you know, you're mm-hmm. looking for something to keep agriculture alive, and nobody likes to work, you know, at a loss, so mm-hmm. uh, hemp definitely has to be explored.
0: So tell us about this partnership. Uh, so in South Windsor, uh, you're still growing tobacco, but now you're growing how much hemp?
2: We have a 20-acre pilot plot in which we have a consortium with uh, incredible edibles, the Jarmac Farms of Enfield and the consortium is open to any farmer in the state of Connecticut that's interested in growing. We would like everybody to join on board. We have the Yukon Extension Service, Connecticut Valley Lab, and uh, the state of Connecticut. You know they're totally behind this this test plot. Mm. So any farmer in the state of Connecticut is welcome to call, and the great thing is is that all of the information derived, we're all on a street that we've never been on before, all of this information that is gathered for growing this year's crop will be available to any Connecticut farmer that will need it in the future. It is a great learning process.
0: Uh, Ed, I'm curious, uh, because you said that this is uh, new for uh, many of you, so tell us like, what have been uh, the upfront costs, and, and where do you even get your seeds from?
2: Well, the seed number one by contract uh, we are all first step we had to get a permit from the state of Connecticut which involves a criminal background check fingerprinting and they do an extensive background check anybody with any felony record or whatnot would not be able to get a permit then after that you know comes the seed you must have certified seed hemp seed to, to grow and to get a license our seed you know was a uh, contracted by Incredible Edibles. It's kind of expensive. It goes anywhere. It's between 75 to a dollar a seed, depending on what variety you plant. There are feminized plants. Uh, we chose to go with non-feminized. And this, this is a case where you have to literally go through the field by hand and eliminate the male plants so they do not neutralize the female plants.
0: And so tell us more about that. Um, So why do you need to have non-feminized plants?
2: Well, like I said, this is what we chose. The Jarmac operation in Enfield, they had purchased feminized seed, in which you still have to go through and check, because the pollen from one male could spoil the whole 20 acres. And you have to identify these plants at an early age before they start pollinating and destroy them. Uh, We are going for the CBD oil on our operation, along as the JarMax. And uh, with this, you know, the plants, if they were to be neutralized by the males, they would not flower and produce the pods from which we get the oil. Uh, This is a very, very labor-intensive crop, similar to tobacco. You know, it cannot be done, if you're going for the CBD oil, it cannot be done by machine. This all has to be done by hand, and it takes an army of people.
0: Uh, there's certainly uh, risk involved uh, when you're a farmer. You know, how concerned are you with, there is so much demand today uh, for CBD. Uh, so many states are now on board. Uh, even Canada, uh, European countries are selling, are growing um, you know, for CBD. Um, I'm just curious like, what some of your concerns are moving forward, Ed.
2: Well, first of all, the main concern is being a farmer. We are certainly, you rely on pesticides and herbicides. Right now in the state of Connecticut, there are no pesticides or herbicides that are cleared for use on hemp. And it is susceptible to powdery mildew. You know, weeds are your enemy. Like I said, we needed the rain that we got right now. But after this, you're going to have to go through with heavy cultivation, manual hoeing of the plants. And uh, there are so many unknowns. Uh like I said, you have to be almost an expert to identify the male plants for the females. We had experts here yesterday provided by Incredible Edibles, and we said right now at this point the plants are too young that to we found female plants, which we could identify but the males are not far enough along; they have to get to a six-layer, a six-level uh, height mm. on the branches before they're easily identifiable.
0: Uh, coming up, we're going to talk more about um, what um, there are some resources to help local farmers. We're going to be hearing from uh, Bonnie Burr, who's assistant director and department head with the Cooperative Extension System at the University of Connecticut's College of Agriculture. Um, I, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier, Ed, about uh, the cost of these seeds, and they're hard to come by. They're a dollar a seed. So how many uh, pl- hemp plants do you expect to grow on 20 acres?
2: Well, we planted in a neighborhood of about 100,000 seeds for, to, for germination in the hothouses. And, you know, we, we've almost exhausted all of them. So, you know, it takes quite a bit. Of, it's quite a large investment. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I would just add too. Um, you know, I was out there last week uh, on, on Wednesday when some of these seeds were going in the ground, Lucy, and Ed was talking about the amount of hand labor that's required. Uh, you know, we're talking about tens of thousands of seedlings, tiny little sort of, you know, couple inch high seedlings that are have to be delicately placed in the ground, literally spaced inches apart over 20 acres. It, it is it is hours and hours, hundreds of hours of, of man labor and, and a lot of people that are needed to be out there to do this. It's a lot of work.
0: Uh, Ed Cacheta, I actually live in Suffield, and so there are still tobacco farms there. Seeing uh, uh, laborers who come and and do that work, it is uh, fairly intensive. And the fact that you have a history growing tobacco, you have the workforce that can help you do this.
2: Well, right now, our situation in South Windsor, we are not allowed to have a labor camp. And this is why we have uh, so graciously and thankfully have the Jarmack family involved. They have two camps in the town of Enfield and uh, basically they are supplying, they are the backbone of labor for this operation.
0: Uh, and before we end, Ed, um, I mentioned other states are also growing uh, hemp. Have you been talking with people outside Connecticut?
2: Oh, yes. Uh, I've been in touch with people from Canada, and like I said, we had representatives here from Kentucky, experts, you know, and there's been many, many people involved. Yukon uh, Extension is most gracious. They've done all our soil sampling to before we put the plants in to get the soil ready for it. And uh, they are also have uh, three, if not more, experts on this matter, you know, Jerry Berkowitz and uh, his team are doing a great job and we expect a lot of help from them, you know, when it comes time to get out in the field and identifying these male plants.
0: Uh, Patrick, remind us again, uh, Jerry Berkowitz's expertise at at UConn.
1: Yeah, so um, Jerry Berkowitz was actually a professor that I profiled as part of a story I did for uh, NPR a couple months ago on UConn offering uh, what was being billed as, and probably is, uh, the nation's first cannabis growing class offered to uh, undergraduate students. Um, And I think some graduate students were auditing the class as well. Um, But at any rate, this was a class all about how to grow hemp, uh, the type of plant we're talking about today. Uh, It was a A a ton of uh, students enrolled, which wasn't terribly surprising, but hundreds of uh, students uh, did get in on this, and uh, Jerry Berkowitz uh, was sort of at the forefront of that uh, and has been at the forefront of a lot of research that the university has been doing on this plant.
0: Well, I want to thank uh, Ed Casheda for joining us by phone. Again, he's president of Casheda Farms Incorporated in South Windsor, Connecticut, uh, a longtime uh, family farm growing tobacco, also now looking uh, to grow hemp uh, in a partnership with the town of S- uh, South Windsor. And also, uh, you mentioned Incredible Edibles a few times. We're going to be hearing from the CEO of that uh, new company in a little bit. But Ed, thank you so much for joining us today here on Where We Live.
2: And thank you for having me, okay? It's a great service you provide with providing this information because I think a lot of people have the wrong idea about what's going on. You know, this is not marijuana. We are monitored very closely by the state. You know, the testing is being done. And uh, hopefully, like I said, with credible edibles model, is this is not a high. This is health that we're talking about. <laughs>
0: Ed Cacheta again. Thank you. Also, Patrick Scahill with me, the uh, environment and science reporter at Connecticut Public Radio. He's going to stick around as we learn more about hemp and the resources out there to help local farmers grow this crop. And later, hemp produces CBD or cannabidiol oil, which is now being marketed in all kinds of products. What do scientists know about how it affects certain ailments and medical conditions? We're going to talk about all of that coming up here on Where We Live. You can join us too, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks to the federal farm bill, many states are now regulating how hemp is grown as consumer demand for CBD products makes the business of growing hemp a multi-billion dollar industry. We just heard from a South Windsor farmer, Ed Casheda, who's participating in the state's pilot program to grow industrial hemp. And coming up, we'll hear from the company that's partnering with Casheda's farm. In studio with me now is Patrick Scahill, science and environment reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. And joining us is Bonnie Burr, assistant director and department head with the Cooperative Extension System at the University of Connecticut College of Agriculture, Health, and Natural Resources. Bonnie, welcome back to the show.
3: Lucy, thank you so much. And Patrick, we certainly appreciate all the work you've been doing in bringing hemp out into the
0: public so that we can all talk about it. We'll tweet out a link to uh, Patrick's story, uh, his recent story on farmers uh, growing hemp. Um, Just look for, uh, search for at where we live on Twitter. You can also join us 860-275-7266. So Bonnie, let's learn a little bit more about, Yukon's um, efforts to help local farms. We heard from Patrick why it's important to diversify a farms losing money. Um, we know the dairy farms are closing. So I'm just curious about some of the questions you're getting from local farmers. One
3: of the things that people got very interested in was in the 2014 Farm Bill when it first was, was brought forward. Uh, Connecticut was one of nine states that didn't move at that point in terms of making it a, a, a viable viable opportunity to uh, start to plant and do pilot programs. Uh, Governor Lamont certainly let it be known very quickly that he wanted us to move forward, uh, that he expected the university to to certainly uh, come forward with research opportunities, with education, uh, and in working with the Department of Agriculture with Commissioner Hurlburt, uh, we began learning very quickly that we needed to make sure that people were educated. Uh, at some of our meetings, we would have anywhere from 50 to 170 people that turned out. So we understood that there's a lot of curiosity about the crop. And at UConn, we just want to make sure that we can give the best possible information. Uh, you heard from Ed that there's a lot of, a lot of uh, you know new things coming forward with it. And our job is going to make sure that, that the information that they're getting, that they're using, uh, is information that can help them be more profitable.
0: So give us an idea of some of the questions you're getting, especially
3: when it comes to breeding. So one of the things people are certainly looking at as Ed identified is, do I go with feminized plants? Do I go with clone plants? Uh, do I go with, you know, the the, the mixture and then pull the, pull the males out? Uh, you know, we joke, as always, it's the females that are doing all the work, <laughs> uh, especially as we try to identify what are the what are the, the crops that you're going to try to get out, the use you're going to get out. Patrick talked about the fact that there's a lot of difference in terms of, of what's the difference between. between between marijuana and and industrial hemp, one of the biggest things for us has been educating farmers and others, especially the others, uh, that industrial hemp is very different. It's like comparing a Guinness to a non-alcoholic beer. Uh, There's a a big, broad uh, range in terms of what you think you're going to get out of it. And it's the same thing with with how we look at cannabis and, again, with the industrial hemp. So people are asking us, A, what are the business plan opportunities that they need to look at? Uh, That's the first thing that we say is you've got to make sure that whatever you're going to plant is going to be profitable. And then we go forward in terms of what are the growing conditions, what are best practices. And that's where we are right now with a lot of our our interested people uh, is helping them identify, A, can this be a crop that I can use, you know, to to enhance my farm operation? Or is it going to be something that I'm going to be exploring for a couple of years uh, you know at a very small basis so that I can get the best the best um, practices you know under their belt
0: is there a chance that when um, someone a farmer is growing a hemp plant that the THC levels will actually be above what the um, the FDA and others say is uh, is reasonable for a particular product?
3: That's a great question, Lucy, and yes, it can be. One of the things that we're very, very clear about is that you have to have certified seed. So in Connecticut, what we've said in order to help farmers get into this process as quickly as possible is that you have to use certified seed that can be on another state's list. And the certified seed helps you to identify uh, where that seed came from. It's a very transparent process. And the consistency is what we're really concerned about. That's where we're going to be doing a lot of research at UConn, because you can say that something is, you know, going to consistently come to a 0.3 THC. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you're not monitoring that up till it's where it starts to be the point where we're going to, to pick it, uh, you can roll over the 0.3 very quickly.
1: Patrick. Uh, So, Bonnie, one question that I know you've gotten a lot is is probably a a really, really basic one, but one that's kind of hard to answer, and that's how how do we grow this plant? So this is a plant that for decades was, was illegal, correct?
3: Correct. Uh, so uh, the one when we take a look at how you want to grow hemp, it really depends on what market you're going to be going for. Uh, if you're out in, in Montana, Wyoming, where we're seeing an amazing increase uh, in how they're growing it, they're doing a lot of field-grown hemp. If you're looking at where we have really uh, reduced acreage like a, you know, in a population-dense state like Connecticut, a lot of our folks are going straight for CBD. And to do that, we have to make sure that, uh, A, if you're going to be planting Outside, there are so many variables. You heard Ed talk about the fact that you know pesticides are 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 not. There's not a labeled use for for hemp, so we have to go back and such a tremendous amount of work that's going to be done by hand. The other area we're seeing real growth in with regards to interest is in greenhouses. So we've got we've had a real challenge in some of our greenhouse um, economics in the past few years with all the plants that are imported into Connecticut. We've seen some of our greenhouses really struggling to make ends meet. So they've started to look at hemp to see if they can start growing the indoor varieties of hemp and that's where they can really start to to get at a lot more intensive growing. They can control the water they can control temperature. So I think that we're going to start to see more and more people uh, you know look for information on how to best, what, what are the best varieties, first off, to plant, and then second, what are the best practices that we need to do?
0: Uh, but, Bonnie, we heard that the seed is so very expensive, and so is that a challenge because there are so many people that are interested in growing, not just in Connecticut?
3: It absolutely is, Lucy, and one of the things that we, we caution our, our our producers about all the way up and down the line is making sure that you're getting reputable seed. And seed has been short this year, especially the feminized seed. And when you're not able to get what we would consider a quality seed, that puts your whole operation right from the get-go at, at a disadvantage. So it's really going to be interesting to see how, as the market expands, uh, the seed the seed, and the germplasm is going to be made available. One of the things that we're seeing that we're really cautious about is what we're getting for international seed. Uh, you know, the Europeans, you identified the Europeans, the Canadians, the Chinese are chomping at the bit to see what they can do to get into this market. So we're really, we're really cautioning people to be very, 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 um, you know, um, do their due diligence when they look at seed variety
0: and what it what it brings to the table. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live. Bonnie Burr studio, assistant director and department head with the Cooperative Extension System at UConn's College of Agriculture, Health and Natural Resources. Also, Patrick Scahill, science and environment reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. The number to call in 860-275-7266 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Brian's calling from Middlefield. Brian, you're on Where We Live.
4: Hi, I have a question about um, not the not the growing, but the processing. So, uh, what what kind of processing involves after hemp is grown, and are, is Connecticut working on developing facilities inside the state, or is this just going to be a crop that gets grown and exported and added value somewhere else?
3: A great question, Brian. Uh, Bonnie Burr. So, Brian, that's that is a fantastic question. One of the things that we are hearing more and more of is is what is the process? So, the reason the tobacco growers were able to get in quite a bit quicker uh, with a little bit more certainty is the fact they've got they've got the ability to dry uh, the flowers if we're going for the the CBD for the oil. And again, we have to identify what is the product that we the end run for the product that that we're growing for industrial hemp. If we're looking at CBD oil, uh, it then it then once it's dried, it goes in and and the oils are extracted, and the oils are are then you know moved through the processing, and then they're sold to to companies or to wholesalers, which would then utilize the the oil. One of the biggest concerns that uh, our State Legislature came forward with was making sure that there are economic uh, incentives for companies to want to come to Connecticut. Uh, Senator Kathy Austin and, and Senator Christine Cohen uh, did Yeoman's work in making sure that these are questions that are on the table. These are things that DECD, Department of Economic and Community Development are aware of. Again, Commissioner Horbert at the Department of Ag is also very, you know, very much in, in tune with the fact that we can grow this crop, but then what happens? To it, and there are some that are vertical, you know, vertically integrated in terms of how that how that goes forward. Uh, you heard Ed talk about the the project he's working on with in incredible edibles. So there's there's still a lot of conversation about where is this going to be processed, what is it going to be made into, and you know
0: how will the product be marketed? This is where we live. Again, we're talking about how local farms are interested in growing hemp after the federal farm bill legalized hemp for commercial growing clearing the way for states like Connecticut to oversee pilot programs. Uh, we spoke earlier to South Windsor's Ed Casheda from Casheda's Farms, which is in a partnership now with a new venture from the founder of Edible Arrangements. The company is called uh, Incredible Edibles, and its chief operating officer is Ronald Reynolds, who joins us now to talk about this. Uh, Ron, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So we're focusing on on hemp and the fact that it produces uh, CBD. And so tell us how Incredible Edibles uh, hopes to to capitalize on this demand.
4: Yeah, no, at the heart of what Incredible Edibles is trying to do really from the start is is figure out how we can do fully traceable kind of infused superfood ingredients. Um, And so from a botanical standpoint, um, hemp is such a natural extension to that. You talk about the roots of... uh, Uh, Tarek Fareed with uh, his successful history of edible arrangements but um, really at the heart of this is we're really trying to build upon the kind of the natural elegance of fruit which is where he started as a founder uh, and now to hemp and then eventually to superfoods so we can kind of really rediscover that edible uh, and edibles can become a verb for wellness not not to make claims or to confuse consumers but to really show that distinction between um, what I believe is a macro trend—that people are really rediscovering these ancient uh, foods and plants and how they're used in the body—and um, and where we go from there—so incredible edibles is really trying to pick up on that broader trend uh, and create uh, products and uh, and powders and and ingredients that can go into and be infused into food uh, that is truly traceable. Uh, and and pure.
0: So, Ron, how did you, um, I guess, pick Cacheta Farms uh, to partner with? How will that work?
4: Yeah, I mean, listen, we are. I mean, we are extraordinarily uh, proud to not just uh, Cacheta Farms, but also to be working with South Windsor Town themselves, and and many others, Jarmic uh, family, and others, Yukon, who's been phenomenal. So, what we what we did really was to look around the state and just uh, selfishly say, what are the best thought leaders and, and, and capabilities that are out there. And so given the long, deep history of, of Ed and his family and, and, and others, our general view was between this, uh, between this consortium of folks, uh, if Connecticut was going to have pilot programs, which is really at the heart of these licenses that research is supposed to be done, we wanted to make sure that we got, as I said, the best and brightest around the table so that we could take all this information and really share it in the public domain. I think that's what probably sets what we're trying to do apart. This is really a kind of soft public-private partnership Mm -hmm. um, so that what we're learning, we will feed into uh, people like uh, Bonnie and her team and make it absolutely available for everyone. Because Mm -hmm. our general view is that although we are focused on the kind of last mile of this, trying to infuse great, uh, traceable, pure CBD into food, If it, if we don't have the research, if we don't know where the market's going, if we don't know what the capacity is, if we don't have a game plan on how to extract it, which is what one of your, uh, listeners talked about, then we're, then it's not going to grow at pace in Connecticut. So we thought given the scale and given the legacy of, of Tark and what he has done in Connecticut, it seemed like if we can put all of those pieces together, we'd have a great shot.
0: And so what is your timeline? Uh, again, uh, products with CBD is very trendy now, but um, by the time you're selling, is this going to be an issue um, with, when there are, again, concerns about the efficacy of CBD and questions about that?
4: Um, well, we're doing actually two things in parallel. So so as it relates to what's growing in Connecticut, I mean, the reality is that what's in the ground today probably won't be harvested until late September, October. Mm-hmm. As Bonnie noted, it now then get, needs to get dried. Uh, we are in conversations with South Windsor as some of the other folks in our consortium are thinking about working in parallel with South Windsor and their community to possibly put an extraction facility in the town. Uh, It's a natural location, given the the deep, rich history of tobacco. So for what's going in the ground as part of this pilot program, we're talking about having extracted oil uh, ready to be processed um, in in the first quarter of 2020. So in parallel to that, we are also partnering uh, in in getting other fully traceable CBD, uh, mostly from Kentucky right now, because Kentucky has such a long, deep, rich history given its head start uh, on this. So we're extraordinarily excited about what what we believe can become uh, a growing industry in Connecticut, but we're cautiously optimistic because there's a lot to learn. Bonnie talked about this. Um, this has been off the market for 80-plus years, and to pretend that you can just turn it back on and have agricultural excellence and understand how to handle it, there will be failures. There will be other things as part of this process, and that's what we hope to – both learn the good and the bad share that and hopefully build a broader industry and partnership with all the, um, all, the, all the pieces of the puzzle.
0: Well, Ron Reynolds, again, is Chief Operating Arf- Officer for Incredible Edibles. Again, this is a new company uh, launched by Edible Arrangements founder, Tariq Farid, who's a Connecticut resident. We thank uh, Ron for joining us today on Where We Live to talk about uh, this uh, interesting partnership with the town of South Windsor and Cacheta Farms. I wanted to go back to uh, Bonnie Burr uh, from Yukon. You know, I'm just curious with all of the, again, the interest in growing this, I'm curious about what other university partnerships or who maybe UConn is partnering with uh, to get the best information out there and the best research. Lucy, one
3: of the things that we're really excited about as a land-grant university is that we can partner with other universities uh, in the land-grant network. Uh, We've been attending meetings. Uh, We have what's called a multi-state project uh, around industrial hemp, and that meeting is gonna be held uh, in August. So our researchers will be going to sit down with researchers, uh, you know, again, from other universities who have really identified that this is an area that they wanna really explore. Uh, Cornell has been doing a fair amount of work. Obviously Kentucky, Uh, there's there's certainly people that have been ahead of what we're doing, but UConn recognized as soon as the, the farm bill came out that we needed to be at the table on this. And, you know, we've got great opportunities to see where we can go from a health perspective uh, with UConn Health uh, and some other folks that we've got at the university.
1: Uh, Bonnie, one of the things that, um, one of the words that Ron said uh, a lot there was this idea of traceability. Um, and I wonder if you can just maybe uh, expand upon that idea a little bit more. So the CBD market right now is, is very, very large. There are a lot of products out there that are labeled as having CBD, um, but we don't necessarily know, A, if they do, or B, where that CBD hemp comes from. So talk more about why this idea of traceability is important and, and the role that that is playing and what's going on in Connecticut right now.
3: Sure. One of the things that really became evident in 2014 when the Farm Bill came out was that this was going to be an explosive opportunity for farmers to really get into. Uh, they've been doing this, again, as you identified, in Europe and Canada. The Chinese are into it. Uh, so one of the things we wanted to make sure that we could do uh, was, was adhere to what FDA saw as real needs if it was going to be a, a human consumable product. And so FDA is currently uh, in the process of doing a public public uh, gathering of information, you know, they're looking to see what are the things that people think are positive, what are the concerns that are out there, and traceability has been something that has just consistently been brought out every single time they do public hearings, they ask for public comment, is that we've got to understand where does the seed come from, uh, where is the seed being planted, where is the seed being harvested, and and then taken for processing. After it's processed, where is it going? So the traceability, uh, from the time we order seed, to the time we receive it, to the time it actually goes into a product uh, is absolutely vital to make sure that we can understand where the where it's coming from and and how it's going to be used.
0: You can join our conversation here on where we live eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. You know, coming up, we're going to talk more about what consumers should uh, ask and and know before buying uh, many products that are labeled uh, CBD. Uh, but in studio with me again is Bonnie Burr, who's with Yukon, and Patrick Skahill, our science and environment reporter, uh, talking about this uh, this interest in growing hemp uh, for CBD. Uh, we got a question. Um, Tweet, actually, Patrick. Uh, Mary writes, uh, uh, she heard you mention uses for the stem of uh, hemp plants like brake pads and rope uh, earlier in the show. Uh, she writes, hemp is a fiber like linen, so it can be turned into fabric. And she wants to know, are there any companies in Connecticut or New England investigating turning hemp into textiles?
1: Uh, I might defer that one to Bonnie. I, I would be surprised if no one is not investigating yeah. it, but I, I don't know. Do, do you know, Bonnie? The uh,
3: to my knowledge, we don't have anybody that's doing it on a commercial scale. Uh, a lot of people sometimes will liken it to to growing flax. And, and again, part of the process is where can we start to really ramp up that kind of of research and production to see how we can utilize the strands that are in the in the the more fibrous um, varietals that are being planted. So again, research to be done to see what are the best plants, types, and varieties of hemp to be grown that would best be utilized for for fabric and and things like that. Certainly there's opportunities we're seeing it done with concrete. Uh, We're seeing it used, as you identified, in a variety of commercial ways. But again, it's the variety that you're planting. And so that's where the research really needs to to broaden out so that we can identify, okay, if I want to make linen, you know, a a linen-like cloth, what's the best varieties to use? So certainly plenty of work to be done.
1: Yeah, and I I do think just from a, uh, I guess, a science perspective, uh, this plant is at a, a very interesting crossroads right now. As Ron was saying, it's a plant that's been out of agricultural fields um, uh, for decades. It's coming back in. There isn't an established body of science for how to grow it, the best type of seed, where to put it. Like we just don't know a lot about this plant. So it's, it's sort of a, a steep relearning curve that people are doing pretty rapidly right now.
3: Well, it is, and one of the things that people questioned was where's the germplasm. So the the federal government keeps a lot of seed and germplasm. But after it was after it was outlawed, uh, you know, in in one of the one of the marijuana acts, people are questioning where is all of that germplasm? Where did it go? Was it destroyed? Uh, so again, that's one of the things that we're having to do is reconstruct, you know, where that seed is 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 kept. Uh, how we're going to build up that national that national um, you know um, database again on on what this product is going to be.
0: Oh, we mentioned the state pilot program a few times. I'm curious, you know, with more than uh, 60 uh, people in the state uh, looking to uh, obtain licenses uh, to grow um, hemp, uh, is there a, a certain threshold that the state will not cross? Do we know how many um, are available in our state? Uh,
3: commissioner commissioner Hobart has been very very uh, proactive in saying that if you've got a license you know the ability to permit and get a license his his department is going to be entertaining those those inquiries and I think that's what's really vital is letting the process run uh, one of the things that we found is as we go forward to do research our protocols for and, and things that we need to do in order to get a license uh, are going to be different than somebody that's doing it commercially so that's where the commissioner and the administration has been very helpful in saying we recognize that there's going to need to be some adjustment in terms of how we permit, how we do the licenses and certifications. And so that's that's part of the learning process. So
0: the more people that get in, the, the better we're able to explore how to have that, that uh, happen. Mm. Uh, Joseph from Wallingford called in just to recommend the website Ministry of Hemp as an informative resource for those interested in hemp growing. I'm just curious, Bonnie, before we run out of time, if people are interested in learning more about hemp, uh, besides going to UConn, uh, are there some good sites out there for them to check out? I would say that Cornell is certainly doing
3: yeoman's work. Uh, U.S. Hemp is doing some great work for us uh, in terms of getting information out there. Uh, there's any number of places that we can we can recommend, depending on where your your interest lies. Again, I can't stress enough that it's what do you want to do with that hemp how do you want to process it? What's your end game? And, and the other thing that we're just making sure and giving a lot, of, a lot of caution about is making sure, again, that you've got the right business plan in place, making sure that you're understanding the legal ramifications of how to get into this, this arena. So uh,
0: lots of places, lots of information. And if you want more, come to see us at UConn. Bonnie Burr, Assistant Director and Department Head with the Cooperative Extension System at UConn's College of Agriculture, Health, and Natural Resources. Bonnie, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lucy and Patrick. Also, Patrick Scahill, Science and Environment Reporter for Connecticut Public Radio. Patrick, thanks for your time. And again, we'll tweet out links to his uh, reporting uh, at WNPR.org. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. After the break, so what is known about the efficacy of CBD, which is found in everything from lotions to lollipops? pops. We're going to find out after the break. You can join us to or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy in CBD comes from hemp, a plant in the cannabis family, but unlike marijuana, which has a high THC level, CBD is non-intoxicating. It's popping up in all kinds of products advertised to cure all kinds of ailments. Are the claims factual? Joining us now by phone is Dr. Peter Grinspoon, instructor at Harvard Medical School, also author of Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. Uh, Dr. Grinspoon, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So what do we know uh, when someone sees a product that's labeled CBD? Do we know how much is in that product and what it does exactly?
5: Well, uh, somewhat. Um, we, the problem is it's not particularly well regulated. So we don't know for sure exactly how much CBD is in a particular product or if there's any CBD or if there's only CBD in that product. So usually you want to buy something that... Um, from a place that has independent laboratory testing, where they have independent labs sort of uh, do, you know, spot checks and make sure that um, what they're marketing actually has what they're selling. So if you go to a you know, local gas station or a local store, they might not have that independent testing. But, you know, some of the online stores, for example, or, for example, in Massachusetts where, it's, where cannabis is legal, in the dispensaries they're very strict. Uh, you pretty much know you are getting the cbd that they're advertising so part a is actually getting the cbd that you're looking for and then part b to your question is it effective that's the million dollar question that everybody is um trying to figure out certainly the enthusiasm has outpaced the science um there's very good science in animals that it helps with you know pain anxiety um insomnia interesting that it might help with addiction and with psychosis um there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, people swear by it, but there isn't yet a lot of good human data that it works. We're getting more data every day, but it's certainly very intriguing, Mm -hmm. the data, but there's certainly not airtight data that it works.
0: And the fact that there um, isn't a lot of data looking at the efficacy of CBD, that relates to even the questions of legality for so long, and now that things have been relaxed, at least for commercial farmers, does that play into it, Dr. Grinspoon? Yeah, the legality is so
5: complicated, and I like to joke that the leg- legality might even change by the end of this conversation because it's so in flux. Different parts of our government have different interpretations of the legality. You know, the DEA is so paranoid and misinformed about cannabis that they're just trying to keep anything cannabis related under wraps and, you know, hemp and cannabis are the same plant except for how much THC, which is the intoxicating quantity of marijuana is involved. Um, at the same time, the FDA and the Department of Agriculture say that hemp is legal. If hemp is legal, you know, CBD basically is legal because, you know, if orange, orange is illegal, orange juice should be legal. It doesn't make any sense. So you have different parts of the government um, saying different things. And, you know, uh, CBD has been a supplement. And if you're a supplement, you're basically healthy until proven unhealthy. But they just the FDA just approved Apulodex for childhood epilepsy, and that's a drug. And if it's now a drug, a drug is dangerous until proven not dangerous. So there's a big contradiction um, in their definition of what CBD is, and there's a contradiction among different parts of the government. So they're actually talking about coming up with a new regulatory framework for CBD because it just doesn't fit into any of the contradictory boxes that they have right now.
0: I'm glad you brought up uh, the drug uh, that's been approved to treat epilepsy, I believe, in certain children that have a a particular disease. Tell us a little bit more about that.
5: Well, parents were desperate um, with these childhood epilepsy syndromes. And then, you know, they were just desperate parents to try anything. And there was a lot of anecdotal evidence that it worked for kids. And parents would try this screen called Charlotte's Charlotte's Web. You can see the videos on the Internet. Drastic reduction in seizures, like visible. You literally can watch these kids taking a tincture or um, some other formulation and their seizures would just stop. Like literally, you could Google and see these videos. I mean, it looked like magic. This stuff is so effective for these cruel, intractable childhood epilepsy syndromes. So finally, GW Pharmaceuticals said, hey, why don't we look through the propaganda? Maybe a cannabis-based medicine will work. And lo and behold, they tested it, it works, and now they've got a cannabis-based medicine, which is really funny or ironic because mm. cannabis, according to the U.S. government, is still Class one in the Controlled Substance Act, which means high abuse um, liability, which it isn't, and no medical utility, which obviously isn't true if you've got a cannabis-based drug that's been approved. So um, pretty much everybody agrees that we've got to get it out of controlled, uh, Schedule one of the Controlled Substance Act both CBD and cannabis, so we can start studying these things, because there are so many medical utilities.
0: So when people hear that success story uh, that you mentioned uh, related to uh, these epileptic seizures in children, uh, they may think, well, CBD will be able to help me with um, some condition I have. I'm just curious, when people are consuming CBD, Dr. Grinspoon, are there uh, causes for concern how that might impact other medicine they may be taking, or or just uh, other side effects?
5: Yes, well, the the main cause for concern that I would have is that um, people might hear that CBD cures cancer, which it doesn't. It may help cure cancer as an adjunct, and it may may prove to cure cancer 10 years from now, but my main concern is that people would use CBD instead of better proven drugs. So that is my main concern. You have to talk to your doctor, and you can't use CBD or medical cannabis instead of something like chemotherapy that we know works. So that is my main concern. Um, you know, a more specific concern is that, you know, the CBD does have side effects like anything else. It, um, for certain conditions, you shouldn't check liver tests. It can affect your liver, not majorly, um, and it'll get a lot safer once it's regulated and you actually know what you're getting. But, um, you know, when they do give the kids a pulodex, they do check their liver function. Um, just like we do when we give people cholesterol medications. Um, The main concern with CBD is that it can affect the blood level of other medications, just like grapefruit juice does, because it competes for the liver enzymes. So they're not as available to degrade other medications. So, for example, if you're on a blood thinner and you start taking CBD, you should just let your doctor know so he or she knows this, and they might want to check the level of your blood thinners a little bit more closely. I haven't heard of anybody bleeding because they're taking CBD but you should the doctor should know that if you're on CBD we should look at your level of blood thinner a little bit more closely because the level might be a little higher so as long as you everybody communicates about it, we destigmatize it so that nobody's afraid to talk about CBD or medical marijuana with their doctor. It's perfectly safe to take it's only when people are embarrassed to talk about their doctors that it becomes dangerous.
0: So you talked about products that someone might be able to pick up at a gas station, but what about at a cosmetic store at CVS where there might be a lotion that says that there's CBD in it? Is that uh, something that they should avoid?
5: Well, I don't think they're dangerous, per se, unless you have an allergic reaction to CBD. People can be allergic to marijuana, just like any plant. They could be allergic to hemp, like any plant. But assuming you're not allergic, just like you're not allergic to... Uh, you know, oak. I mean, people of you don't have an unusual allergy. The main, the main side effect of that is your pocketbook, because I think um, those things haven't really been proven to work. CBD generally does have anti-inflammatory properties. So you can make a theoretical argument that if you have an anti-inflammatory property in a cosmetic, it's good for your skin because inflammation is part of what causes skin damage. But, you know, you can make that general argument, but I don't think anybody's actually studied skin and showed that it's healthier with mm. CBD cosmetics. So I think they're making a big leap. And I think, again, that's somewhere where marketing and enthusiasm is getting way ahead of the science. I just haven't seen any study where people have said, okay, here's the makeup with CBD, and here's the makeup without CBD, and look, the skin's healthier with the mm. CBD. So I think there's a little bit of hocus-pocus there. But again, the main side effect is financial. It just costs more. I mean, you're sort of paying for nothing but um, and expectations because yeah. – People get their expectations up for something magical happening for CBD, which probably isn't going to happen. We don't know yet. I don't have a crystal ball, but it just seems a little bit far-fetched. You know, not just the makeup, but the CBD in the hamburger and the CBD-emitting pillow and the CBD in the ice cream. It just seems to be um, (laughs) getting a little bit out of control here. But Again, I think the main side effect would be financial.
0: Well, we want to thank Dr. Peter Grinspoon for setting us straight on some of the things we should be thinking about before we uh, we purchase that next CBD product. Again, he's an instructor at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Grinspoon, thanks for your time. We appreciate it.
5: Oh, a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Today's show produced by senior producer Lydia Brown. Uh, coming up on Thursday, we're going to focus on the hundreds of thousands of people that are turning out on the streets of San Juan to call for the resignation of Puerto Rico's Governor Ricardo Rosello. On the next Where We Live, uh, we're going to look at the reasons behind those demonstrations and talk to Connecticut residents with ties to Puerto Rico. That's coming up on Thursday. I'm Lucy Nopithancho. Thanks for listening.